This morning, if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 as we start a new book, a new gospel. We haven't done one in a while as we've been kind of going through the pastoral epistles and the general epistles and thought it would be very, very appropriate for us to take on a gospel. We'll be here for a while, so settle in. I want to also remind you that Scripture is the best commentary on itself, and so when we read the Bible, it is a unified whole. 66 authors, uh, author, or 66 books written by uh, 41 authors, some people say, 40 at least, uh, over a period of time that spans at least 1,500 years. Uh, if you go back to the book of Job, which is the, probably the oldest book of writing of man's literature, probably 3000 B.C. or the events of that particular book, but meant to be taken as a unified whole. And so as we read now the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's interesting that Luke and Paul were travel companions, and they spent probably six or seven years together. So it's not unusual that we would find Luke elaborating on some things that we've already seen in Paul's epistles. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, we're also going to see the flavor of the book of Acts, because the book of Acts was written by the author of this gospel, Dr. Luke. And so those two books, you can actually call uh, the book of Acts is really Luke 2 if you want, but you'd have a tough time figuring out how the Apostle Paul got to the place that he did unless you understood what Luke wrote in his gospel. And so uh, if you got to the end of Luke's gospel and all of a sudden, how would they get there? Well, the answer is in the book of Acts, which is really the second book that uh, Dr. Luke wrote. And so this morning as we begin this new book, people often ask and use as as kind of a bone of contention, if you will, very often say, well, you know, uh, Luke's gospel says this, and John's gospel says that, and Mark's gospel says this, and, you know, when you read in Matthew, it says this. Let me explain to you why that is very important that they do not all say the same thing. Because if they said exactly the same thing, I could guarantee you they were plagiarized one from the other. The fact that there is a difference is absolutely important to them being truthful. And because there is a difference in them, as you might expect, with human character, with human abilities, as someone would write a book, you would expect it to have the flavor of that person, would you not? And in this case, we're going to find, and it is expressed here in the first few verses, that Luke, being a doctor, well-trained, extremely educated, he expresses that he wants to lay out a rather ordered manner of understanding. You might expect that from someone in the medical profession. And furthermore, there are things that Luke saw that John didn't see. There are things that Mark saw that Matthew didn't see. And so those little differences are not bones of contention. They're tidbits of truth. There are things that one person saw that the Holy Spirit inspired them to remember and to write. And so as we look at each gospel, it has a different level of import with specific characteristics of the one person that they're all trying to tell us about who is none other than the Lord Jesus. Amen? In Luke's Gospel, the very specific thing that is being drawn attention to is something that is so beautiful and wonderful for each of us, and that is his humanity. You see, Jesus was, as Isaiah 9-6 plainly declares, the Son who was born. 
but he was all, or excuse me, the child who was born, but he's also the son who is given. And so from a human perspective, Jesus had human earthly parents. He had a mom and a dad. He grew up in a home just like every other young boy in Palestine would have done. Uh, he knew what it was like to be chased around by his friends. Uh, he knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty and to have to take the animals outside of the house after the evening wore on. He had to do chores. He worked in a carpenter shop alongside of his father. He had blisters. He had shoes that wore out. He got to go everywhere that every other person went during that period of time. He traveled all the way from the north in Caesarea Philippi, all the way to the south in Jerusalem. He traveled that very long uh, valley known as the Valley of Jezreel. Jesus was a real person. You see, you and I, when we think of God, we normally think of the characteristics with which we could not identify. In other words, I think of God as eternal. You probably do too. I think of God as all-powerful. You probably do too. You think of God dwelling in the heavens on high where we can't see Him. We know Him uh, by the things that He's created and made and the way He's left His Word for us. But none of us could see God and live. You see, when we think of God, it's very tough for us to relate to God purely as God. But where we get to relate to God is in the life of Jesus. Because he was a man, tested just like you, had an earthly life just like you, had people that hated him just like there are people who hate you, had people who loved him just like you have people who loved you, you had friends, you have foes, you have all of these human things going on in your life. The Gospel of Luke is the story of the Savior from the human perspective. And so it's very poignant. It's written in a way that is easily identifiable as we are people just as Jesus was a people. Uh, he, he was part of us, the human race. He wasn't just simply God. And so this is probably the most relatable of the four Gospels. And so as we read it, as we study it, we, we bump into rich people and poor people and people that were in power and people that were peasants. We, we see crowds. Interestingly enough, in Luke's Gospel, we bump into a lot of women. You have to remember at that day and time, there, there was no liberation of women. They were still basically not legitimate members of society. It wasn't until Christ came that women had any rights at all. And it was in fact the Christians who began to say, you know what, hey, Paul told us that men and women are equal in the eyes of God. And so we see in Luke's Gospel, he actually gets the story of a lot of women, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus and all these people. And so it's a very wonderful story. Uh, people often ask the question, you know, well, I don't really see his name. Dr. Luke is only mentioned three times in the whole New Testament. So uh, it's not surprising that that's a little difficult for people to understand, but he's listed in a very special way uh, with, along with Paul in the book of Acts beginning in about chapter 16, all the way through the end of the story in chapter 27, he, he speaks of himself when writing about the Apostle Paul by using uh, the, the wonderful word, we. He says, we did this and we did that. And he showed himself to us. So he traveled with Paul. 
And so it's very, very clear that they spent a significant amount of time to each with each other. The other thing that I want to draw your attention to is from a human perspective, what is the most important event that's ever occurred in human history? It's the life of Christ, amen? No Savior, no salvation. We all perish eternally. We are going to hell without Jesus, amen? The story of Luke's gospel is for the Son of Man, and he uses that title Jesus does of himself, and Luke picks up on that. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the message of Luke's Gospel. So when we see the lost sheep and the lost coin, we see the Lord coming and and giving us that picture that Terry prayed about of, of the father running to the prodigal son. That's Luke. That's who he is. That's how he wrote. That's what we'll see, all these personal stories that are so wonderful for us to digest. I think that because of his training as a physician, and this is extremely important again to remember, he would be one of those guys who would be very detail-oriented. He would pick up on little subtleties that we might not see. That's what physicians do. You want them to do that, amen? Probably some of you have had medicine practiced on you, yeah? You know, and you go in and they don't find anything. You go back and they don't find anything. And you go back again and they still don't find anything. Or they think they found something. Then you come back and they give you another medication, which is for something that they also found. And then finally somebody actually sees some little tiny weird test result and they go, ah, that's it. That's what doctors do. You see, so we're going to see some tiny details that aren't in the other Gospels. It's also interesting because they didn't have medical specialties then. You know, you didn't walk down the street there in Jaffa. And if you ever go to the old city in, in Israel and you go to the city of Jaffa, the hometown of Peter, the old streets are still there exactly as they were in Jesus' day. And so you can walk on the same stones that the Lord and Peter and Paul all walked on. And as you're walking through these very narrow streets, one thing becomes very obvious. Um, They didn't have the internet then. They did not own neon signs then. You had to know where somebody was in order to get to their office. And when you got there, the way that you knew someone was a doctor was the same sign that we use for medicine today. The little serpent wrapped around the pole thing, the little apothecary guy. That was on the windowsill, usually carved in stone. And so when you would go there, it didn't say pediatrician. It didn't say cardiologist. It didn't say anesthesiologist. It just had the symbol for a doctor. Doctors did everything, including taking care of ladies when they were getting ready to have babies. And they would usually enlist the help of a midwife, but it was a regular physician. So the story of Luke begins with, guess what? The story of two babies. Luke cared about such things. He's writing this from a doctor's perspective. It's like, yes, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he had researched, no doubt, his material and uses a phrase here in verse 3. It says, from the very first. And I want you to get a sense of what that actually means in the Greek language from whence it was translated. It doesn't mean just like we would think from the first. It means from above. 
In other words, when he's talking from the very first, he's talking from the very first, the same very first like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that's how it's translated in John's Gospel. It's the same picture. So he didn't get this information from Joe Schmo, who lived in Caesarea. He got this information codified in his heart and in his mind from the Holy Spirit. And so as we begin this Gospel... Very personal, very poignant, and absolutely powerful because it speaks to who we are as people. And so I pray you enjoy the journey. We'll be here probably for a year and a half or so uh, because it's a a big book. It's got lots of words. And we're going to look at all of them. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in it. Father, we thank you. Lord, for the power of Your Word. Lord, that You would send Jesus to this miserable, wretched rock that floats in space, God, with a a handful of people on it at the time. Lord, we ask that You would take Your Word and just make it powerful to us, that we'd be able to use it, God, in our lives on a daily basis, that we'd enjoy, Lord, the glories of it. Father, speak to us through Your truth. Lord, help us to lay hold of truth and to live it. And God, as we study, would you give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness? Bless us, God, we pray, as we read and enjoy the bread of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke 1. For inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. So this wasn't the first gospel. What he's plainly stating is he's going, you know what, there have been other people before me that have written gospels. By this time, uh, it's generally believed, and I believe that this is the case, that for sure Mark's gospel was in circulation. Highly likely Matthew's gospel was in circulation as well. So this probably was the third of the gospels to be authored, one of which certainly was already in circulation in written form. And so here, here comes another guy, and that's why I prefaced this the way I did. Because people look at, well, why rewrite the same things? Well, because from a human perspective and from a point of focus, it's the same reason that uh, we can go, how many cookbooks do you think exist in the world? Let me tell you what it is. 3.7 billion cookbooks, according to the Library of Congress. 3.7. That's every single written piece of literature categoried in the Library of Congress. Almost 4 billion cookbooks. How, how many books on self-help? There's, there's thousands of them. How many books about this book? Again, billions of them. You, you see, there had been other books, and there had been other people, but there had also been some falsehood. There had been some stuff written like the Gospel of Thomas. And, and a couple of other little wonderful Gnostic Gospels that eventually got discovered in the 1940s. And so there were some things circulating that weren't true. And so when you have truth and you write down the truth, then eventually the truth becomes a larger body of evidence and the falsehood gets pushed out of the way, which is where it belongs. And so verse 2 says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that was delivered 
them to us. In other words, he got this by first-hand accounts of people who actually saw the events and who were ministering with the Lord Jesus himself. So this is that information that comes by the very best of sources, which is directly from people who saw the events. If I want to study anything, I don't want to talk to somebody who talked to somebody who talked to somebody who was there. I want to talk to somebody who was there. Amen? Luke was one of those people. He got to talk with people who were actually there, and he himself, in a couple of instances, was at the actual events that are being discussed and described. And so this is that good source of information that we would call first-hand in some cases and second-hand in another, but from original sources. I want people that have actually lived it. If you're going to author a book, maybe you're going to become a biographer, Again, you don't want to talk to somebody who wrote a book themselves. You want to talk to the person who lived the life if you want to write a biography. And so that's what Dr. Luke does. And it seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding. That word perfect means complete. And the understanding that's being spoken of is a spiritual understanding, not just a factual understanding of the knowledge, but a spiritual understanding perfected by the Spirit Of all things, again, same phraseology from the very first, from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the same was in the beginning that was with Him. You get the picture? There's only one real message of the Gospel. It's been conveyed to us through several different human sources, but one ultimate source, which is the Holy Spirit. That's why when you read your Bible, and I've shared this with you before, I became a Christian at 13 years old. I walked with the Lord until I was about 18 years old. I kind of began to question a few things. By the time I got to college, I'm like, well, you know, evolution explains everything. And, And I spent this time of wandering, and I even spent a time trying to disprove the Bible that I had previously confessed faith and trust in. And so I can tell you that when you study this, I can tell you what you're not going to find. The contradictions, so-called, are not in it. You can't find them. No one has, no one will. What they'll bring up are the differences in things that people might see from a slightly different perspective. But they're not contradictory. They're just simply another point of view. And so it tells me that this is genuine. It's true. It was written by real people, human instruments, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But as a whole, when you take it and examine it and tear it apart, that's why when people do that, like... Simon Greenleaf, founder of the Harvard School of Law, like Lee Strobel, a journalist who said, you know, I don't believe it, so I'm going to just tear it apart. He writes Case for a Creator, then Case for Christ. Not only gets saved, becomes a defender of the faith. Josh McDowell, same thing. Begins his ministry with Campus Crusade because he wants to be now telling the truth about what he knows because he tried to figure out that it was wrong and couldn't do it. And so Luke is helpful to us in that regard. And so he begins this journey by telling us a a little bit about the very beginning stages of his time in ministry. Now, I do believe that it's highly likely that Paul and Luke may have known each other. You remember Paul was called to Macedonia 
always in Luke chapter 16, you find the strange vision of Paul's kind of sitting there, he's dreaming, and all of a sudden he sees a man from Macedonia. One of the great wonders about the Apostle Paul is when you look at his life, if you were God, and knowing what we all know about the Apostle Paul, he was a super Hebrew, amen? He said about himself, I am a super Hebrew, I'm paraphrasing. He was a Pharisee. He was, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a Jew's Jew, in other words. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. That's why he stood at Stephen's trial. You see, he was a super Jewish person. And so what does God do, just for humor? He sends the super Jew to the Gentiles. And he sends the Gentiles to the Jewish people. And so it's wonderful how God mixes up all of the different flavors of everything so no one will be able to say, well, you know, he just sent a real Jewish person to the Jewish people so they'd know by their Jewishness. No, he, Paul messed with their Jewishness. He's the one that told them, by the law, no flesh is justified. Do you remember him saying that? And so here's Luke hanging out with the Apostle Paul, getting this picture of all these things. So he's kind of a guy that can bridge across that gap a little bit between Paul's ultra-Jewishness and his own Gentileness. So he gets the full picture. So he joins Paul at Troas, remained with him at Philippi, and he was actually with the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned uh, at Caesarea. And when we read the word Caesarea, people get that confused because Caesarea is kind of like, uh, it's almost a title, though it was an actual place in this case, in that day and time, and there are still to this day, there are two Caesareas in Israel today. There's Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast, about 45 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean. It was the place of Herod's palace. It's a very beautiful, to this day, it's been largely excavated. There's a huge hippodrome right on the ocean there. there. There's monumental archaeological diggings. If you come over to my office, I can show you some tile that I got from there. But they didn't tell me I couldn't pick it up, so I picked it up. I was being an archaeologist for the day. And I talk and got all kinds of cool stuff. And so as you're there, you, you see this immense city. But there was also Caesarea Philippi, which many of you know about. That's in the north. It's up by Syria. That this place called Caesarea was the home of Herod. And Herod was not a good guy. And we're going to get him mentioned with a really good guy, Zacharias, in just a moment. It's really important to get the contrast and the beauty of the way that Luke writes. Because he mentions these guys, both of them, in one sentence. Which is about as weird as you can get, unless you understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to give us a very broad view of the world that he lived in. And so first we see this declaration, if you will, of Luke. He says, many have taken to hand to set in order uh, the declaration of those things which are most surely believed, the NASB says. You, you see, there was an enormous amount of material available. And all Luke's doing is saying, hey, I'm going to tell you the same things when they're the same things. And I'm going to tell you some different things because I did my own research. It's an original document. And so, of course, you're going to find the virgin birth. Of course, you're going to see the supernatural. You're going to see the miracles. You're going to see the sinless life of the Lord. You're going to see him teach truth to people who don't want to hear it. 
Uh, that's true in all the Gospels, amen? And so much so that Jesus said himself, there, there's a reason I speak to these guys in parables, because they don't get it when I speak any other way. They're dense. Luke gets that. He says, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you about the truth that Jesus spoke as well. He's going to, you're going to see in Luke's Gospel the Lord triumph over disease and um, all manner of things that happens to humankind, even death itself. You're going to get the cross, of course. You're going to get His birth. You're, you're going to see the Lord buried. You're going to see Him rise from the dead. All those things are in Luke's Gospel. But the interesting thing is the way Luke perceives those things. And so he mentions his determinatory uh, source seeking here. He, he looks and he says, you know what, I want, to, I want to do something that hasn't been done yet. I want to give it a little bit of a different view. You know what, everybody had seen the miracles. There were all kinds of people wandering around that had seen the miracles of the Lord. Uh, There's all kinds of people that had heard about the wisdom. Yeah, we sat up there. We were in the crowd at the Sea of Galilee. Or maybe they were in the back of the group up on the Mount of Olives. Lots of people had heard those things. But Luke records a few things that nobody else does. Interestingly enough, and this is why I shared this with you, if you compare Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, and praise God, one of the beautiful things about computer technology today is word-searching tools that can search for everything, including context now, punctuation, which we've added, which wasn't there in the original language of these documents, but we can search them for the intent of the writers, and when you look at Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and you lay them side by side, there are 320 verses in Mark that are found exactly the same in Luke's Gospel. So in that case, why? Well, because he was buried, and he was dead, and he was raised on the third day, and he was seen by Mary and Mary and Mary, all three Marys. It was Peter and John that raced to the tomb. So you can expect those things that are absolutely etched in stone, concrete facts to be found in both Gospels. And because so much of what happened in Jesus' life was absolutely testified by thousands of witnesses at that point in time, you can expect a majority of all of the Gospels, we call them synoptic or taken together as a whole, when you make a synopsis of each of the Gospels and compare them, you find out there's an awful lot that's similar. That's why you will hear me when I teach, well, John said this, and Mark said that, and Luke said this. Matthew, on the other hand, didn't pick that up because he was a tax collector, and he was also very Jewish. And so he picked up the Messiah part. But the other three guys picked up a little more of the human, and Luke picked up very human elements. And so he says, hey, you know, I met Philip the Evangelist. I talked to Martha. I talked to Mary. I knew Lazarus too. I got to talk to these people. So you, you get a friend's perspective in a lot of these things. He was also extremely dedicated. He finishes this work, and he dedicates it to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus' name means beloved of God. But there's an interesting thing because he actually dedicates also not just this gospel, but also the book of Acts to the same guy. Theophilus is also kind of a title. And it seems that this is somebody who's very learned, also a Gentile, more than likely lived in Caesarea. The reason that's important is it was the seat of Roman power. 
It wasn't Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not the seat of Roman power. The seat of Roman power was Caesarea, slightly to the north and to the west on the coast. And so he's, he's kind of given us this perspective that this is a multinational, multicultural writer here. This is somebody who didn't just see things like Matthew did from a very Jewish perspective. He saw it from a Roman perspective. But he hung out with a guy who was a real Hebrew. And so he has a very balanced, we might say fair and balanced, approach. Kind of like Fox News isn't sometimes anymore. You know, it's a little bit off the charts. This was fair and balanced, truly. Hung out, understood from a Jewish perspective, absolutely understood from a Roman perspective, and he himself was a Greek. Awesome viewpoint. Best of both worlds. And so, a very full gospel. Interesting that when you get to the first century or so of the church, after Jesus has gone back to heaven, there are a number of historians that wrote during that time period that we we're privileged to have the documents that they wrote. And, and guys like Tertullian and Uranius and Origen and uh, Jerome, Eusebius, these historians of the early church, as they wrote, the one guy they all quoted, every one of them was Luke. Because he was accurate. They could trust the words that had been written even at that time. And so we find now as we come to verse 5, uh, all of a sudden this presence of an angel in the picture. And it begins here in verse 5 by saying, And there was in the days of Herod, and so now you know why I've prefaced all of this, in the days of Herod the Great specifically, uh, because he's the one that's going to persecute and try and kill Jesus. You remember the story, amen? We'll get to that in a little bit. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, or, or of Abiah. And so here's this, this aging priest, and his wife of the, was of the daughters of Aaron. So Zacharias marries into the priestly order of Aaron, and he marries this woman, Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. And let me help you understand why this is important. Because it says here he's of the order of Abijah. And you all know the basic story that of the children of Israel, beginning in about 900 B.C., the children of Israel were divided into two territories, basically two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was 11 tribes, all but the tribe of Judah lived in the north, basically above Jerusalem to the north. And below that was the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, also known as Israel. And so you had Ephraim and you had Israel. And so as those kingdoms elected their own kings, by the time that, that this would be written, almost a thousand years later, as we saw in, the, in our study in Hosea, here are all these kings, they're evil kings. The, the Lord is saying, you know what, quit doing these things, don't do this anymore. If you keep doing it, it's not going to go good for you. I'm going to have you taken into captivity. That is exactly what happened. 
And of course, you know the story. They go away to captivity in Babylon. Because of that, they lose their ability, really, to, to even express fully their Jewishness. So what they did during that time was they divided up the teaching of all of the Torah into 24 basic divisions. And those basic divisions were handed down to one person. So 24 times a year, these priests would take their division. This is the division of Abijah. And so Abijah was one of those men who was entrusted when they went to Babylon. And when they came back, only four of them survived. One of them was Abijah. They were given the opportunity then to serve in the temple to teach. And so Zacharias is one of those guys, only one of four of the original 24 divisions. And so this is a big deal for Zacharias. He's an old guy, but it's his once a year and they cast lots and he's going to get to recount now these things which he now alone is responsible for after a thousand years. He's been entrusted with this particular set of teachings from what we would call the first five books or the Pentateuch. So he, this is huge for him. He's going to go serve in the temple. And so here it says there was in the days of Herod and mentioned in the same breath as this godly man, Zacharias. Now I want you to see something here. They, they couldn't be more different. Herod was a vicious prince. He, he was part of the Roman Empire. He was a Roman-appointed governor who was then announced king because the Jews couldn't decide on who was going to rule over him. And so you have him. You have Zacharias, who's a virtuous priest. One man, extraordinary talent. When you look at the works that Herod built, this particular Herod, it includes Caesarea Maritima, one of the largest excavations from that period of time left in the known world was from Herod's city, Caesarea Maritima. You can go view it today. You can see the Hippodrome. You can wander through the columns that were invaded by Turks. and uh, It's just crazy what Herod built. He also built the fortress of Masada. And so when you go to Masada and you're looking off this 2,000-foot cliff and here's this patio that sticks out over a cliff and it still has the mosaic tile from Herod. He was a crazy guy. And then you have Zacharias, who two weeks out of every year gets to go minister in the temple because it's what means something to him. you got one guy that's about as high-key, high-stress, glory for glory and power is what he seeks, and you got another guy who just wants to be able to go put in his two weeks at the temple because it's all that means anything to him in life. These guys are totally different. One was a foreign-born usurper, a native, was the other one of Israel. One, interestingly enough, was of the tribe of Esau. He was an Ijumean, so he was from Esau's tribe. The other, Zacharias, was from the tribe of Jacob. Two brothers, but at polar ends of the spectrum as far as God's concerned. And so here's these, these men uh, two of them described in this sentence. And then all of a sudden the problem comes to point for us in verse 7. But they, that would be Zacharias and Elizabeth, had no child. That was considered to be a curse to a Jewish person. Jewish family didn't have any, especially male children, 
the lineage may die out with them. There are no other male heirs. That name ceased to exist. And so here it says they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. It basically says they were stricken in years if you read the original context. And the reason that that's important is because it tells us pretty much how old they were. According to Jewish history, the commencement of old age was 65. You were hoary-headed if you made it to 70, and if you were well-stricken in years, which is what's said here, that means you were 80 years old. So these guys are Abraham and Sarah type old, okay? They're old. They're not sitting around going, boy, honey, I hope we have a few more kids. They're going, I hope we have one kid, and that will have to be a miracle. So all that means anything to them is their service to the Lord. And so it was, notice the place that this all happens, and so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, the order of Abijah or Abiah, while he's taking his two weeks, means so much to him. And you have to put it into perspective because there's some beautiful similitude here that gives us a picture of the Lord. And so as he's doing this, what he's really saying was, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell for him to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And so here's what's happening. And you need to get this picture to understand what's going on here. Some of you have heard me explain this before, but as the children of Israel traveled out in the wilderness, they carried with them, in essence, a portable temple. That portable temple included all the accoutrements that God laid out. First and foremost, when you came to that setting, you would see the children of Israel, all 12 tribes, arrayed north, south, east, west, around the temple area. The temple area was defined by a very tall, about 15-foot-tall linen fence. It was staked up with wooden poles with cords to hold it in place against the desert wind and a gate led you into that compound that was multicolored. It represented all who could, would come to me could be saved. So anyone could come inside of the holiness, the white curtain of God. Anyone could get in there. But once you got in there, it started to get a lot more concise about what was going on. So as you entered into the gate, you would come to the court of women and the court of Gentiles. And if you were a woman, unfortunately, that was as far as you could go. If you were a Gentile, not of the Jewish faith, you could go no further. That was pretty easy to tell because God told them, all of your male children will be circumcised on the eighth day. And so nobody except for male Jews could go past that. There's an importance to this. Stick with me. It was beyond that that sacrifice was offered. And so when you got into the court of the actual temple, several things were going on. What was going on was when you came inside of the sacrificial area, that's where the slaughter took place. On the Day of Atonement, that could be thousands of animals, goats, sheep, doves, lots of death. Then what would happen is the priest would go to the bronze laver. The bronze laver is a big basin, basically about four feet in diameter, filled with water. They would wash their hands and lift their hands to heaven. They would then be cleansed of the death. 
They would then take the meat from that. They would go to the altar of sacrifice, this huge burning cauldron that had a grate on top of it. And on the top of that grate, they would lay the meat. And the meat would then be some of it eaten by the priest, some of it to the family, and some of it left for the Lord to be turned to charcoal and ash. Now we come to the inner court the very first place that you would go to. As you went into the door of the temple, once you got there, you would first immediately on the right-hand side, you would see a table, a golden table, and on that table would be 12 loaves of bread representing the children of Israel. Remember, they're all Jews. In front of the veil that separated the holy place, which is where God dwelt beyond the veil because He was inapproachable. He was light was the Holy of Holies, and there sat the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments, and a pot of manna inside of it, representing God's provision for them while they were in the wilderness. On top of it, the mercy seat, where they met with God, God's power and His glory rested there, and two angels, either one called the cherubim, facing one another. There God would meet with the high priest. But before he got there, there was an incense altar that stood before you could get inside. To the left of that was the giant menorah, the light of the world. And so everything about this whole thing, blood being shed and cleansed and the sacrifice made and salvation and then going in, the bread of life, the prayers to get you into the kingdom to meet with the Lord, the light of the Lord... All of it spoke of Jesus. Every facet of it spoke of Jesus. Here's where Zacharias' story gets so interesting. So Zacharias, it's his turn to go to the altar of incense. Focus for a second. The altar of incense was made of pure gold. The coals that were in the altar of incense came from the altar of sacrifice. So unless you had been cleansed, and unless you had offered yourself a sacrifice, and unless you took the fire of God, remember what Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and an angel of God took a coal from the fire and touched his lips. So here comes Zacharias to this golden altar. What does he offer on that altar? Frankincense and myrrh. What did the Magi bring to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So as Zechariah is doing this, and he's facing this giant curtain, which is separating him from the Lord, you see, until Jesus dies, that curtain remains in place, and nobody goes in except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Those prayers are as close as you could get. That's why this was so important to Zacharias, because he's going, man, I get to get this close to God. And so he stands there offering up at the altar of incense with the people praying outside. And and at that time when the priests went in, they always faced the Holy of Holies. They never turned their back on the Holy of Holies. They never wanted to show God anything but their face. You see, this is a very personal picture for us. The Lord wants to meet with us personally. 
The Lord's already taken care of the sacrifice. The Lord's already taken care of the cleansing. The Lord is the fire that's in your life. He ignites your prayers, and it is Him that gives you access to God the Father. Zacharias is representing that to the Jewish people. And so there he stands at the altar of incense. And verse 11 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Why? Because he was expecting to meet with God. And all of a sudden, he's not going into the Holy of Holies. He's outside of the Holy of Holies and there's an angel. He's like, man, there's something up. This is huge. This is big. I've been doing this. I'm now well advanced. I'm stricken in years. And I've never seen this happen before. This is a major deal. And all of a sudden, the angel begins to speak. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. You guys ever wondered sometimes if if your prayers somehow go into like the spam folder in heaven? You know, you're like, I've been praying this for like six weeks, you know, and you know what I'm talking about. You like you type an email, you know you sent it, and it's there in your in your mail. Yep, there's my sent mail, but that person never gets it. You ever wondered? I know Zacharias did. They're, they're, they've been wanting a child for a long time. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, which means Jehovah shows favor. God's going to favor you. You're going to bring forth John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at his birth. You see, this wasn't a time of rejoicing. This is a very hard time. Herod is on the throne. He is not a nice guy. This is a terrible time. It has followed 400 years, we call the intertestamental period, from the end with Malachi's prophetic word to the writing of Matthew's gospel is 400 years of hell for the Jewish people. There hasn't been any joy. Nothing's gone right for them. But there's going to be joy. That's why the angel makes the announcement. That's why he's going to make another announcement relatively shortly as we journey through this gospel. You'll have joy. You'll have gladness. That that gap where God hadn't spoken to the people. God had not had a prophet on the earth for 400 years. They're kind of wondering. Now you know why it says, God has heard because there'd be a temptation, you know what? If I'm involved in ministry, you know how tough it would be if I was the only pastor left on earth? And no other, oh yeah, I heard from the Lord too. Yeah, Because sometimes that's what keeps us going. Maybe you have that in your life. You talk to somebody who also knows the Lord. Yeah, the Lord was doing this in my life and talking to me about that. This was a time when God wasn't speaking. And people are going, man, where'd he go? What'd he do? What's happened? This is also the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes and basically he's a, he's a Greek ruler who just unleashes hell on the Jewish people. Wipes them out. Defiles the temple so much so that it's unclean. Bad time for the Jews. 
verse 15. For he, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He also will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And we'll get to that next time. You see, here's a man that's kind of gives us a picture of what it takes to really be dedicated to things of the Lord. He's not going to do anything that the world holds dear. He's going to dedicate himself to being the mouthpiece of the Lord. To hallmarks of a life. You know, if you have personal holiness and you have moral authority and you have spiritual power, you're a force to be reckoned with. It's the reason that our governing officials have so little, little power right now is they don't possess moral authority. They have very little character, no personal holiness, and consequently very little spiritual power. That's why they have a problem. But John could stand boldly and say to the Pharisees, how come you guys came down here? You go first repent, then you come down here, and then I'll baptize you. He had that moral authority. And then he says, and we'll end with this, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in spirit and in the power of Elijah, in the power of the spirit. What did Elijah really do in and of himself? The answer is nothing. It was the Spirit of God that defeated the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. It was not Elijah. You know how I know that? Because you remember what happened to him right after he defeated the prophets of Baal and Mount Elijah, on, on Mount Carmel? He goes down to a brook, and he's being fed by ravens. And Jezebel, a little tiny lady, comes and threatens him. He goes, oh, she's going to get me. And he runs and hides in fear after he defeats the prophets of Baal. He was a real piece of work at times. Typical dude. Real high, real low. The power of Elijah was the power of God. That's who did those miracles. That's who still does miracles. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's John's mission. That's John's career. That's what he's going to do. And so as this gospel begins to unfold for us, the, the beauty of it is all these human stories, all these people that are involved in the life of the Lord Jesus Himself in each other's lives, and how they interact and how the Lord uses each one of them. And so... Next week, we'll begin our series called The Savior's Saga. We'll be in that one for a while. And hopefully, we'll see the personal, the, the very beautiful personal life uh, that is the Lord and how He ministers to us in our humanness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. And Lord, in graciousness and thanksgiving, we just... I say to you, Lord, how, how can we not be blessed when we know that you love us, that you sent Jesus to this earth to die for us? We bless you, God. We thank you for this time this morning and pray now as we embark on this journey with Dr. Luke. Lord, these words that you authored by the Spirit through his life, how would we glean and would we grow? Lord, bless us. Continue to use us and strengthen us. We pray for the days that are ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.